0: My name is Kate Middleton. Those of you who uh, haven't met me already, I have not recently had a baby.
1: We have this gag about me being Wills and she being Kate Middleton, but it's wearing a little bit we thin, isn't the it? Really?
0: We have royal couple quite we a long are. time. I
1: know. Um, so we, um, together with our friend uh, Rob Wallows, psychiatrist, we run the Mind and Soul Foundation, which is we've been going now for about 13 years. And we're a think tank around emotional mental health and Christian spirituality. So we started off dealing with more sort of, well, we deal with a whole range of mental and emotional health issues. Uh, And our ambition is to see better outcomes for Christians who are struggling with mental health or emotional health issues in the church.
0: Yeah, and also to equip you guys for the work that you're doing in the community, because we know that one of the biggest needs that you'll be seeing wherever you work, schools, other work that you're doing, you will be coming across a lot of mental and emotional health needs. So we want to have great resources, great signposting to put you guys in touch with the information that you need.
1: Kate, tell us what you thought about this morning.
0: Oh man, this morning was awesome, wasn't it? Is anyone still wrecked from this morning? I feel like I need my own seminar just to get over this morning.
1: I'll run that that for you, my friend. (laughs) Sit down I'll run it for you. You (laughs) You don't want to miss out on this. We're going to have some amazing teaching from Kate in a minute. But I I think the thing for me, um, we felt so passionate about mental, emotional health stuff for so long. And uh, for me, it kind of just really hit home again that for, for us, the poor, our poor is people who are struggling with mental or emotional health problems. And uh, we, just so, we felt so renewed in our calling uh, to that area of ministry. And I guess we want you to feel the same this morning. We want you to, this afternoon, we want you to feel passionate and renewed in your calling, but also to know that God hasn't called you to break you. God has called you to help remake others, and he wants to equip you for this incredible ministry in order that you can thrive in it and, and certainly survive in it but certainly not burn out through it. 51% of um, EA pastors polled said that they were highly stressed and close to breakdown. And uh, if you're a pastor, and many of you are pastors here, probably most of you are pastors of one kind or another, we need to address issues of our emotional and mental health. And that begins with having the conversation. And um, it's never adequate just to have one conversation. We hope that today, and maybe yesterday for many, would have been the beginning of a conversation around mental and emotional health. We are so passionate about reducing stigma, aren't we?
0: So we want to talk about emotional mental health, but we want to encourage you guys to be doing it too and to be getting out there, to be getting stuck in, like was said this morning, that amazing message that the first thing you have to do to help the vulnerable and bring justice is just get in proximity to them. So we know there's loads of questions from many people working in local communities around, how much can I do that? What if I'm not a psychologist? What if I'm not a doctor? How can I do that? How can I get involved with people? And we hope to answer some of those questions later on.
1: Um, we've got a, uh, we, we, we know a number of you already asked your questions. Sophie's going around with a bucket. If you've still got questions to ask, if we have a chance, we'd love you to just drop them down, chuck them in the bucket, just because the huge volumes of people, when we get to uh, the end, we've only got about half an hour for those questions. So it's much easier for us to go through the bucket rapid fire and try and answer as many as we possibly can. So we're going to do that this afternoon, but it will be inadequate. You will hopefully have found uh, one of these cards on your seat. If you've come in slightly later, maybe they've already gone, but it just gives you access to um, the Microsoft. Foundation website where all our resources are and lots of your questions will already be answered. There's also something called the Mental Health Access Pack on there which is for every church in the UK to be able to access a great PDF resource on every single uh, major mental or emotional health problem that you might face in community. It gives you a theological approach and a great psychological uh, psychiatric approach and a great pastoral approach to supporting someone in recovery. So we wanted to build that for the church so you know where to go to in order to get a kind of holistic view on a kind of theological outlook, a psychological outlook, and a community-based pastoral outlook too. So uh, we'd love you to check those resources out as we move forward. But most of all, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to equip us to the ministry that he's called us to. And without the Spirit of God working in our lives, we are ill-equipped. But with the Spirit of God working in our lives, we have really so much of what we need to do this ministry he's called us to. So why don't we pray uh, as we begin, and then I'm going to hand over to Kate. Jesus, we want to thank you that you've called us to the poor. We've uh, received that calling again today. Maybe it's uh, poverty uh, in poor communities financially. Maybe it's uh, in uh, people who've been ostracized on the basis of race. And maybe it's uh, areas of our country which are, are, are struggling with deprivation. Or maybe it's people who are struggling with emotional and mental health problems. Or maybe it's just us and we need your ministry to the poor right now in our own hearts. Whatever that ministry be, Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would equip us for it. We know without you we are ill-equipped for the task that you've called us to. And we pray now that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you uh, this morning for what we heard Brian teaching and for Immaculate and her incredible testimony of hope. And we pray, Lord, this church would be filled with the hope and the power of your Holy Spirit. Equip us for your calling to the poor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great, I'm going to hand over to
0: you. Thanks, Will. Awesome. So thank you so much, you guys, for coming. And huge apologies to those of you who queued for like half an hour, 40 minutes yesterday and then didn't get in. But thank you so much for coming back. It's amazing to have a chance to talk to you guys as well. So I really appreciate your patience there. So a little bit of introduction. As Will said, I'm a psychologist. I started out as a medic, first of all, and then I ended up working for the church. So you have to have some sympathy for my parents who aren't from a Christian background. And my poor, my poor bewildered mother, who still has been her to tell people at weddings that I'm a doctor, because as she says to me, it's just a lot less embarrassing, dear. <laughs> So um, so I work for the church, I'm officially three quarters of my time as a pastor in our local church just up the road in um, Hertfordshire. I have uh, two kids, one husband, one cat. Uh, I also write books, I speak a lot, I do all of this. So if you're coming to this expecting to hear from me the magic solution of how to eradicate stress from your life, I have bad news. Well, the good news is there's probably still time to sneak out, go look at the bookstore, do something else, but I don't, that isn't the message I'm gonna bring you because my life is one of juggling lots of things and I am excited about this life. I wanna get the most out of it and I wanna release the most of what God has placed on me, what I know I'm carrying for him. And as a result, that means that stress is something that I constantly have to be thinking about and managing well. And that's what I want to talk about in this session. How do we as leaders manage and hold off stress really well. But before I do that, we need to start out with even just thinking about what do I mean? Because when I'm talking about stress as a medic, as a clinician, I might be thinking about something different to what you're thinking about. And our language around the topic of stress often reveals a misconception, I would say, about what stress is. So if it comes up in conversation, you'll hear phrases like, my daughter, so my daughter is 13, my son is six. Uh, We very cleverly decided to do sort of toddler tantrums and teenage tantrums at the same time. That was real good planning. But my daughter who is 13 will often say to me, she'll say, mommy, stop stressing. And what does she mean? What she means is I'm emotional in that moment, usually frustrated. So she's talking about an emotional state. We'll talk about someone, we'll say, oh, he's really stressed out. What we mean is he's emotional, he's displaying something emotional. But for me, as a a medic, as someone with a sort of scientific background, when I talk about stress, I'm referring to anything in your environment or your life in this moment that requires your brain or your body to adapt. So stress could be something about your physical environment, today is a lovely day, it's not quite as hot as yesterday. But still if you're in a space and it's really warm, that is physical stress to your body because it has to try and balance your temperature and respond to that, that change in your and the atmosphere around you, that's a biological stress. Stress is about anything that requires your biology and your body or your brain to change. So actually, from the moment your alarm goes off in the morning, you are experiencing stress. Hopefully you're not stressed out. But when you're asleep, your stress system, which is this incredibly intricate system, coordinating hormones and different organ systems and your brain and body and all of these things to work efficiently, to respond to whatever the day is demanding of you. When you're asleep, that whole system is kind of at a baseline because hopefully, nighttime is a relatively low stress time. Unless, who has small children? Anyone? Yeah. It's a, it's a bit risky nighttime if you have small children, but hopefully, nighttime is your baseline. You are least likely to have challenges placed on you during the night, so your stress system is at baseline. From the minute you wake up, there are challenges. You have to get yourself up, you've got to motivate yourself, you have to balance the demands of different things you've got to get done, you have to work to a timetable, you have to focus on the right thing. You have to probably organise other people. You have decisions to make, tea or coffee, toast or cereal. All these things are biological stress. They don't make you stressed out, but they require something of you. So as we kick off right at the start of this session, I want to be really clear that when I'm talking about stress, I'm not talking about something that's just in your mind. Stress is not all in your mind. When we talk about it, we talk as though it was something to do with our emotional reaction to the world around you. And the implication, therefore, is that you should be able to switch it off If you could somehow respond to the world in a truly emotionally mature way, you would not get stressed. The fact you are stressed by this right now is a sign of some weakness or inherent emotional immaturity in you. And that isn't the case. Stress is something that's all around us just because of the nature of the world that we live. We don't live in a in a sealless room with no stimulation and nothing going on. So we experience physiological stress. The second thing I want to make really clear is that stress isn't always about distress. So when we talk about, are you under stress? Are you struggling with stress? We're immediately thinking, do I feel bothered? Is something upsetting me? Do I feel under pressure? And the reason we've got to understand this is because not everybody will experience stress as a negative thing. And stress that can eventually become challenging to us as human beings isn't always a negative experience. So my husband is a lawyer, he loves stress, he thrives off stress, a good deadline, he just loves that. But he, just like anyone else, has to be careful how he manages his stress level. Maybe even more so because sometimes I think given half a choice, he would just work all the time because he loves it. And some of you are in that position too. You love what you do. Given half a chance, you would do it all the time. It doesn't feel negative, but we have to be aware of the impact that stress has on us and recognise that it isn't just when we feel distressed that it's a problem. And the reason is that your body and brain, your stress system, is really good at managing short-term acute crisis situations. So if you get, check out this uh, next picture on the screen now, this guy in the boat is about to have a short-term crisis situation. And when he turns around and looks behind him, his stress system is going to manage that really, really well because it will immediately flood his system with hormones. It will transform things like his blood pressure, his heart rate, even the sugar level in his blood system. His brain will change the way he sees the world will change. He will become more attuned to certain noises and things in his visual field. He will forget other distractions that he was thinking about at the time. His thinking will become clear. His decision-making will become quite binary, so it's easier to decide what to do. His system will respond really well to this. And you'll have heard of this described as the fight-or-flight response. Whether he decides to face up to it, or as I would suggest not being a great canoeer, but just that he paddles really hard in the opposite direction, if he decides to flee and get away... His system will deal with that really well and so will yours. So if you're leaving here today to go back to the Albert Hall and a bear jumps out from behind a car at you, which is unlikely, but if it happens, you will manage that really well. In that moment, you will respond well. The problem with your stress system is that the same system responds to different types of challenge and our world is so complex now and is often very demanding over a sort of 24-7 period. So the challenges of interaction with other human beings, the, the things that we have to coordinate through the day. Many of these are not acute momentary situations, and these trigger the same system. So things like, for example, commuting, traffic, who has to sit in traffic like this a lot in the average week, yeah. One of the things we know that is statistically most likely to raise your risk of struggling with stress is if your commute every day is longer than 45 minutes. Now, those of you living in or near London, probably everyone commutes that long. It's not that long. And we know some of these things that we do, they're not stressful in the moment. In fact, they're really boring. I drive a lot for work. It's boring. But for my brain, for my body, it is a stress challenge because I am coordinating so many different skills over such a long time. And actually staying focused and concentrating when something's boring is physiologically stressful to your brain because it has to stay switched on when really it wants to switch off. Uh, Those of you who tried to stay awake through a seminar like this, hopefully no one's in this position now, but when you're really sleepy and you're trying to doze off, you're trying not to doze off, has anyone ever done that? that's actually really stressful those of you who shift work or who do have kids who are keeping them up if you're trying to stay awake when your brain wants to go to sleep that is a physiological stress challenge other things that also trigger the same system so uh, workload the demand that's on you so I don't know anyone's inbox looks like this one when we have these challenges of everyday life that are just in the back of your mind, they're just things you have to keep going with and somehow, somehow maybe at some point magically you will deal with your inbox. I don't think I'm ever going to deal with mine ever. My only hope with my inbox is that we're, as a church we're about to change our name so when we change it I'll get a new email address. It's great. It's like the slate will be wiped clean. But so all of these things trigger the same system and the problem is, is that your brain and body weren't, wasn't designed to experience a raise in that system over a longer period of time. You can manage really well the little waves that come that life throws at you, but when things just gradually stack up, just gradually, gradually, life starts to throw things at you that are more and more stressful the more that has an impact on you because you weren't designed to live with those chronically raised levels. And remember, these might not be distressing things. So if you look at measures of the most stressful life events, some of the ones that score most highly are the great things. Having children, for example, is one of the most stressful things you can do. Some of you are nodding very sternly at that. Um, Getting married, going on holidays. The, The things that trigger stress are not necessarily the distressing things in our life. But they cause a real physical change, not just something that's in your mind. So stress is not avoidable. As I say, there is no magic solution that will eradicate stress from your life. Unless you just wanna take everything out of it and go and sit somewhere on a deserted island and never speak to anyone. So what do we do with stress? Because the other thing that we've got to remember is that if we start to struggle with stress, That isn't happening because it's a sign of our weakness. So often when people struggle with stress, we make judgments about them, don't we? So you'll hear someone say, oh, you know, suffering with stress. He's had to go off because of stress. My husband, the lawyer, talked many, many years ago about the day that that they had a bunch of new trainees join and one of them on the first day got got quite upset and cried. And he said he overheard the the senior partners just saying, well, they're never going to make it because they can't handle the stress. We make a value judgment, don't we, about people who struggle because of this. But stress is not a sign of being weak. It's a sign of being human. And some of you guys here will have been struggling with stress and feeling like that's your fault. And I want to say to you this morning that it is not a sign of your weakness. It is a sign that you are human. You are not designed to manage that high level of stress over a long period of time. And sometimes life just throws things at us, doesn't it? Some of you are in phases of life where there are things you cannot just put down and walk away from that are causing you stress. You've got young children, elderly parents, work has gone mental, there's debt issues at home, you've lost your job. I don't know what it is, but many of you will have experienced times in life where it has just been incredibly stressful and it's not your fault. So we need to remember that. Because there are some things that raise the level of stress you're likely to be dealing with. One of the simple things is just how much stuff are you juggling? How many plates have you got on the go right now? Some of you, many of you, in fact, I'm sure will be managing full-time jobs, also volunteering in your local church or some amazing community ministry, also looking after family, also somehow trying to keep the house going, also trying to pay all the bills and remember to pay the car tax and all of those other things that you have to do. Some of you have a huge number of things going on and that may be why you're struggling with stress. It's just, just maths, really. Another reason why sometimes we struggle more is because of this little guy. Those of you with the small children might remember that this is Mr. Worry. And one of the amazing things that we do as human beings is not only do we deal with the stress of this present moment, but we have this amazing plan, which is that as well as that, we will deal with some stress, which is of this moment over here, of things that may or may not happen in the future and actually almost always don't, but we worry about them. And they go round and round in our head and we plan them and we rehearse what would we do and how are we gonna manage this. And every time you do that, your stress system responds in the same way as though they were happening right now. So some of you are struggling with stress because your brain is daily dealing with 101 disasters that will probably never even happen. And some of us, our brains are more programmed to be like that, more continuously turned on, very active, very easy, easily caught up in a, in a worry cycle and struggle to get out of that. So if that's you, that will cause you increased stress. One of the interesting things about your stress system is that it's the same physiological system that operates around anxiety and fear. So the two things are very closely linked. If your stress level rises because you have a lot going on in your life, you'll find yourself get more anxious because your brain detects that as as, as a sort of baseline feeling of anxiety. And the reverse is true, if you struggle with anxiety, you will experience more stress because they're on the same system. And some of us have high risk things going on for us. In other ways, things to do with our personality, the way we respond to the world around us, things we learned when we were children that are no longer helpful in terms of how we live as adults, but they're with us in the way that we it, we instinctively respond. Some of these things are more biological factors, genetic factors even, about the way that you're made. Personality, for example, is part of the filter, that the way that your mind filters the world around you. And one of the most basic, personality variables is the the old introversion extroversion one which is in most models of personality because it's such a universally recognized thing that people differ along And the theory of introversion-extroversion is all to do with the sort of um, baseline tick level on the cognitive, the brain bit of this stress system. And so it's all about what's your baseline. And the idea is that some people, their baseline is actually quite high. Their brain, when at its sort of normal relaxed level, is is ticking, if you like, at quite a high level. They would be the classic introverts. And what that means is they don't like a lot of stimulation, a lot of noise, a lot of people. It's not. their Natural environment it triggers a physiological stress reaction for them sometimes much less than the extroverts who have uh, they have a different they have a much lower baseline and what this means is that the extroverts seek out that stuff because they love the stimulation and the noise and the fuss most people of course are somewhere in the middle And even on one day, you'll find yourself feeling more introvert or extrovert, depending on what else is going on in life. But if you're one end or the other, it's interesting to be aware of it. My husband is a a classic extrovert, and I'm quite a classic introvert. And so we are very different. I already said that he loves a good deadline. But my husband loves fuss and excitement and drama. To my husband, there is no better way to start a holiday than nearly missing the plane. It's just the best thing. I myself do not need to run the length of Luton Airport in order to feel alive. (laughs) I would rather be there with a cup of coffee a good half an hour before I need to be. So we have to be aware of this in how we make judgments. and let me just say to those of you who would identify more with that introvert side, I want to be really clear about just teasing apart the difference between introversion and something that looks more like social anxiety or anxiety-based stuff. Because being an introvert doesn't mean you can't do those things. It just means you might need to be aware that they take a toll on you. So I love this sort of thing, loads of people, loads of talking, loads of chatting. But I will be quite tired afterwards and by the end of this week I will I will rather that most people would please go away for a while. So be aware of that. Don't speak something over yourself if that's you that says, I can't do this, I can't access certain spaces, I can't be like that. But be aware that it might have an impact on your stress level. Perfectionism, of course, is another personality variable that is strongly linked with stress. Perfectionists who have this amazing way of seeing the world, they push themselves hard, they aim high, and usually if they achieve what they are aiming at, they just raise the bar again. Perfectionism is linked with achieving great things, but it's also linked with the risk of struggling with stress and anxiety. So if that's you, be aware that sometimes the way you see the world might lead you to experience more stress and anxiety than other people. But perhaps the most common cause of stress in leadership, if we just move our minds to the challenge of leadership, and particularly in the church, is that what we think happens when we become leaders is that we somehow become superhuman. So we look at guys like some of the guys and ladies like we've heard speak on this and we think, wow, those people are just, they're like superhuman people. But I have news for you, that they're, they're not, they are amazing people but they're not superhuman, they're just as human as you or I. And we think somehow that when we become leaders, what should happen is that we become superhuman, somehow able to manage more than anybody else, able to push ourselves further, able to sidestep our human limitations. We read the story of the leaders who only sleep three hours a night, who work every single day. And we think, yes, I too must do that if I want to be a leader. And then we wonder why we're exhausted and we're struggling with stress and we feel like we've failed. But actually, there is no magic ticket when you accept leadership that suddenly transforms you into a super person. We need to recognize that we're all human. We need to know that burnout is a real risk for everyone. I have spoken to so many leaders who have experienced burnout, and you know, not one of them has come to me and said, oh yeah, I saw this coming, I always thought this would happen to me. Every single one of them has said, I never thought this would happen to me. I never thought I'd be the kind of person who would struggle with this. I never saw this coming. Many of them just woke up one day and couldn't do it anymore, just couldn't do it, and were utterly, utterly thrown by discovering that they did in fact have limits. So I want to talk about how we manage this challenge then as leaders and particularly as leaders within the church because I think it is particularly an issue for us. And I want to look at this verse from Romans 12, 11, which I think is an amazing verse which explains the dilemma and the problem that we have where stress is concerned because of something amazing and God-given about the kind of people and the kind we are and the kind of lives we lead. And I want to look at some of the original Greek words that are translated here in this verse and look at three things that we need to learn, therefore, as we think about this issue of stress. And the first one is to do with the the word that's actually at the end of this um, verse, translated here as keep your spiritual fervor. And it's an amazing Greek word called zeo. It's this amazing word, the original Greek, because Greek is this fantastic expressive language. Literally, it has this meaning of burning hot but it also has this sense of something that is bubbling over. It's about passion, it's about the overflowing life. Apparently in Greek when you say it, not when I say it, but when someone who can actually speak Greek says it, it's it's onomatopoeic, it sounds like the sound of boiling water. It's the sense of something bubbling over with excitement. I like to think of it as when you pour a glass of champagne and you're a bit too enthusiastic and it just bubbles over. That's what we are called to be as leaders of faith, as people following Jesus' example, as people who want to change our communities. It was Steve Jobs who said, people of passion can change the community, can change the world. And we want to be people who change the world, don't we? And we've heard so much already in this conference about passion. The guys from vue Church yesterday talked about the pursuit of passion as one of their aims. We saw this morning, didn't we, some amazing examples of people who are people of passion. People with a message that is much more than just a good idea that they're sharing. Something that is literally overflowing from every pore of who they are. And that's who we're called to be as people of faith and as leaders. I love the uh, CEV translation of Romans 12:11, which says this, don't hesitate to be enthusiastic We are called to be people of passion. You read throughout the New Testament stories and and verses that push us and press us and encourage us in this. Encourage us to fan into flame the gifts that are in us. To love God with all our passion. We are called, therefore is the first of the three things I want to draw out of this verse, to be on fire. We are called to be people of passion. But there's more in this verse as we go into our passionate life and as God grows this amazing passion for us in the ministry to which we're called. And this is the word that's actually at the beginning of the verse. It's a Greek word that I think it's pronounced okneros, but please don't correct me on that, Greek scholars in the room. And there's two meanings of this that I want to draw out for you because again, it's a word that's amazingly complex and rich depending on the context in which it's used. And the first one is the next of my three things I want to encourage you to think about today. And it's this, don't hold back. We are called as Christians to live a life that is all out for God, for the things that we're called to. As we manage this CEO, this bubbling passion that we have within us, we are called not to hold back. Ochneros can have this meaning of just withdrawing something, keeping a bit back, not throwing yourself 100% into things. But we are not called to do that. We are called to push the limits of our faith. Isaiah says that we should stretch the limits of our tent. There's that amazing section in a Revelation, in where Jesus is writing letters to the churches of the future, and he talks about one a church maybe like some of ours today, I don't know, and he says that the problem is that they are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Has anybody ever done that thing where you've had a long day and you decide to run yourself a bath? And so you turn it on and you go and, you know, you're going to get your book and your glass of wine or whatever, your radio for the cricket. That's my husband, not me. Whatever you need to do to relax. And then you go and you get undressed, you're ready to get in the bath. And then you discover that your teenage child has clearly had one of her long showers that afternoon. There is nothing more frustrating than a tepid bath. And that's what I think of when I think of this revelation passage. Tepid is one literal translation of that word that that comes out as lukewarm there. We are not called to be tepid. We are called to be hot on fire, not to hold something back. This is later on in uh, Romans 12, where Paul talks about how we're called to love as one example. This is the message translation saying we should love from the centre of who we are. This passionate faith, this passionate leadership life is never safe or careful in any way. It is totally contrary to our culture, our cultural message that says, oh, just be easy. Don't get involved. Stay disconnected. Look after number one. It calls us to explode something from within our own lives. To take what God has done for us and be so inspired by it that it literally overflows from within who we are. It involves making ourselves open and vulnerable and taking risks. Again, like we heard this morning, going into places where you make yourselves uncomfortable, where you are in proximity with the vulnerable, with the needy, with the people of our community who need to see change the most. So if you hold back not only do you miss out but the world misses out. And we have to recognize as leaders this means something for our stress levels because if we are constantly pushing the limits constantly stepping out of our comfort zone we are, if we follow the call like Peter did to get out of the boat we put ourselves in situations where we will experience anxiety and stress so we need to be really good at managing that if we're going to follow this call not to hold back, to be all out for the God who's called us and who has transformed our own lives. The third thing I want to talk about though, is perhaps the most important thing as we sit here and we think about this. And it's another meaning of that word, ochneros, and it's this, it's don't lose your energy. And we are called not to lose the original passion and energy and fire that we had when we started this leadership journey, this ministry journey, this faith journey, this calling that we, that we felt God placed upon us. And the message translation of that Romans 12:11 verse puts this very starkly. It says, "Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflame." And we need to recognise as we're called to whatever it is that we feel called to, as people of faith, as leaders, as those ministering to those in need, that we are called to be all out for God, but we are not called to burn out for God. Too often I've heard people stand on platforms like this and in well-meaning ways, full of passion, shout, I'm going to burn out for God. And I want to say, no, that is not what you're called to do. Why? Because if the ministry that God has called you to is as important as you feel it is, if the passion you have from God means anything, it means that you need to still be doing this in 10 years' time. I don't look at the guys who spoke this morning, someone like Brian who spoke this morning, and think, oh yeah, well that's fine, if he's burned out in three years, we've lost nothing. He needs to still be doing that. That is a lifelong calling that someone like that has. So how on earth do we do that as leaders? How do we recognise that we are not made superhuman when we take up that ministry and that call? How do we recognise that we have limits and live within those so that we don't push it too far and experience burnout and lose the very passion that drives us? So many people who come to see me about burnout have been told by doctors or therapists, you just have to stop doing stuff. Step back. And they're gutted because this is everything about who they are. If we look at the psychological definition of passion, one factor is that when you are truly passionate about something, it ceases to be just something you do and it becomes something you are. This is who some of you are, the things that you're called to. And some of you here today are are desperately struggling with a a worry, a fear that you're going to have to stop doing it because of the stress it places you under. So how do we manage that stress well? How do we run the race instead of starting out a marathon like it's a sprint? How do we make sure we're still running later on in our years of ministry? I want to end with three rules, therefore, I suggest that you ponder for lifelong leadership. Three things to think about and three questions that I suggest you ask yourself as you go away from this place today, as you ponder, as you pray in the coming days. And the first one is about rest. And I want to ask you to think about how you rest. Think about the origins of humanity designed in God's image. If you go back later today and read the Genesis story, you will see straight away that we are formed in the image of God. The message says that we reflect God's nature. And one of the earliest things that we see from God is that amazing pattern, the rhythm of work and rest. That when God creates the world, he works for six days and then he rests. And we, as people designed in the image of God, need to follow the same pattern. Just to remind you, rest is actually a commandment, it's in there. Remember that one about the Sabbath? It's actually quite high up. If you need to refresh yourself, go read them again later. It's, I don't know how anybody else is doing this week so far, but I'm doing quite well with Do Not Murder. The rest one is just a bit more awkward. So just recognise for a minute that being stressed is not a sin, but failing to rest actually is. Gosh, that, that's, that's awkward. Because how many of us, not just ourselves individually, but even in the culture that we set as leaders, how many of us, if we're honest, set good patterns of work and rest and encourage that in the people that we work with? Never mind to ourselves. So rest is something that we overlook, but it's so important. And I suggest to you that it's even more important the more you want to do. If you want to be people of passion, if you know God has placed an amazing passion in your heart, if you want to not hold back and give your all to God, you have to be really good at this. If you don't want to do less, you must get really good at doing rest. It must be your number one priority, the first thing you schedule in your diary, not the afterthought when you think, oh dear, that wasn't a great week to plan. When am I actually going to sleep? Ah, oh, well, I'll do that next week. But then next week never comes, does it? Because next week is just as busy. It's interesting to think about the example of Jesus, this, this amazing human example, but of God in a human body. This man who was without sin. And if you think about it, Jesus was only on the earth for a short period of time. He only got to minister for an even shorter percentage of the time that he was on the earth. Wouldn't something of our human culture expect someone in Jesus' position to kind of blow out? Work all the hours there are. Don't sleep. You can do that in heaven later. Really push it out. Burn yourself out now because you're not going to be here for long. But actually what we see again and again is that Jesus sets the example of rest that he and his disciples take time out to eat. In fact, he tells the disciples off for not stopping to eat when they're busy. How many of us in the last week uh, worked straight through a lunch hour or maybe more than one lunch hour? How many of us have had days where the only thing of nutritional value that's passed our mouths is toast because you've just been too busy to actually eat? Yeah, I can see some of you nodding. I certainly have done that. To process their own emotions, how many of us try and deny that we have emotional needs because we're so focused on the people we want to help and that's a good desire but you're no good to any of those people if in three four five years you've burned out and you've stopped doing what you're doing so if Jesus couldn't surpass his human limitations why on earth do you think that you can that somehow when you became a leader you became superhuman and you didn't have to worry about that stuff you do even you Need to think about those things. So, I want to ask you are you pushing the limits without knowing when to stop? Do you just need to rest more? The second thing is about registering your emotions. Did you know that your emotions have a purpose? They are a warning system to warn you of things that are going on that are significant. They are not things we can just ignore because they're inconvenient. And where stress is concerned, emotions are often one of the warnings that that things are rising to an uncomfortable level. When your stress level rises, when you're just juggling too much, often one of the first signs is that you just start to experience emotions you normally wouldn't. You're just a bit more shouty than usual. That's what my son says, Mommy, you are very shouty today. Or you find yourself feeling those pangs of anxiety. Why am I feeling anxious? I don't normally feel anxious about this. Or maybe you're even struggling more. I've worked with a lot of leaders who've had their first panic attacks after periods of raised stress and it's come out of the blue emotions are important they're like the warning lights on the dashboard of our car but too many of us our response is the emotional equivalent of just getting a piece of gaffer tape and sticking it over the light so that we can keep on with our journey is that what you're doing are there emotions that are trying to tell you something that you need to stop and pay attention to do you need to pause do you need to take some time out to think about your emotional health and why you're feeling and reacting the way that you are and number three is about refuel. How do you refuel yourselves, therefore? What do you do to put back into yourself after you have given out? A lot of uh, the field of stress management shows that it, it's actually less to do with the level of stress that we're managing. And it's more to do with what we do afterwards to recover So the the difference between you managing stress well and not managing it at all might be little things like whether you go for a quick walk around the block after that really stressful meeting or whether you just push yourself to get on with your day. Do you take a lunch hour? Do you do the little things in your rhythm to help you? We have to think long term as we go into this life of leadership and make sure that we're pacing ourselves, that we're refueling as much as we're giving out. We all have probably, almost all of us, if not all, have somewhere about our person, one of these. Who has one of these? Yeah, pretty much everyone. What do you do, I would guess, every night before you go to sleep? Last thing you do with that, you plug it in to recharge it. We know that if we don't recharge our phones, they will be rubbish the next day. But some of you are recharging your phone a lot more than you recharge yourself. And God wants to nudge you on that today and say, you need to get better at this. You need to recharge yourself spiritually. When the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not a one-off thing. It's a continual thing. Keep on being filled. Keep on recharging yourself. We need to recharge emotionally to make sure we have the energy to give out. We need to recharge physically and rest and relaxation so that we don't exhaust ourselves. So that we can still be doing this in 10 years because it really matters. So I want to leave you today just to ponder this and with one last amazing, awesome truth about how God turns on his head the superhuman thing. Because we live in a culture that does does yearn for superheroes. There are so many superhero movies out at the moment, aren't there? So many you could go and see. As a culture, we are looking for something superhuman. But the message of the Bible, as we've already heard once today, is that actually we are strongest when we are weakest because it's not us who's doing what we're doing. It is the amazing God who works within us. And when we are weak, God's power is made complete in us. So it's the opposite of becoming a superhuman to be an amazing leader. It's about appreciating our frailties, our weaknesses, our limitations as humans. So I want to encourage you to ponder what is driving you now. Is it this type of, this, this God-given, Zio type enthusiasm and passion that drives you, something that comes from outside of you, that flows through you? Or is it other stuff that's all too human because it's so easy to exhaust and burn yourself out because you're doing this for the wrong reasons, guilt people-pleasing, the need to achieve, to prove that you're worth something. All of these are so easy to get caught up in as leaders, but all of them carry a huge risk. If you're trying to fuel your own ministry, you are placing yourself at great risk because it's God who works within you. So remember as we finish, it isn't you who's called to pull off all the amazing things that you want to see happen. It isn't you who's called to change your community. It's the God who works within you. So your calling as a leader doesn't make you superhuman, but it does give you the opportunity to be a vessel, to take your ordinary and to carry something because of what God does in you that flows out as extraordinary to bring change to the people and the places around you. So let's carry this well, but most importantly, let's carry it for the long term because we want to see the maximum of what you're carrying for God released for the people who need it the most. Let's take a minute to pray, okay? Father God, we thank you so much for every person in this room, for the passion that is represented in this place, for the the things that people are carrying for you. Lord God, we pray the maximum release of those things for these people, that they will be people who can change communities, who can go out and change the world for you. But we also pray wisdom, Lord God, and the power and grace of your Holy Spirit that none of them would be trying to do it by their own power, by their own strength. We pray for those who are managing right now things that life is throwing, stresses and demands that are outside of their capacity as a human to manage them. We just pray that you administer them right now. Lord God, we are humans with limitations, but we long to serve you in the most effective way and we thank you for the privilege of being able to be part of your amazing plan for this world. So, Lord God, we pray for everyone in this room that they would still be doing what they love to do in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time because they carry that well. We ask that you bless them today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you so much, Kate. Um, We're going to take 20 minutes to try and... And really storm through a whole load of mental health questions. If you need to slip away, please can I invite you to do that just really quietly, just in respect for the people who want to continue to listen. Guaranteed, we will be all out at half past. The first question I've got is, uh, is it unchristian to take pills for depression? Um, I just want to be absolutely clear that we advocate the use of medication for recovery from mental health problems. Because we would long to see parity between the way we treat people with physical health problems and people with mental health problems. If you've got an issue with your neurology, you need a change in your neurochemistry. You need to be assisted with medication to do that. And many Christians believe that somehow uh, the doctor visit will, will heal the body, but, uh, but the church will heal the mind. But we want to encourage you to go to the doctor for the service of both the mind and the body actually to to take a whole uh, holistic approach uh, and to pray, as you would for physical conditions, as much as you would for mental health conditions, but say medication is good for Christians. And don't believe the hype that you read about in the newspapers. Doctors are equipped to support people's mental health with the use of complex, and equipped and efficient medications for your well-being. You're not a statistic, you're a person. Listen to your doctor's advice and please take the medication as prescribed.
0: Yeah, I would just add to that that there are some specific mental and emotional health situations where medication is actually essential. It's really important. For example, if you are struggling with extreme anxiety, your brain will find it very difficult to process other therapeutic input. So sometimes medication can be an essential part of your journey. So talk to your doctor, doctor talk to wise people and if someone tells you that you shouldn't be taking it maybe they're not the wisest person to be listening to
1: how do you share problems illnesses with fellow christians without feeling judged kate
0: yeah, I think this is really important, isn't it? And it's something about the culture that we want to grow in our churches, in our spaces. And those of you who are leaders, you have a responsibility to do this. And it is about a real wisdom of showing vulnerability in an appropriate way. Now, that doesn't mean that you just do what my six-year-old son does very often, which just spill your emotions out everywhere because you have no control at all. But it is about appropriate sharing and recognising that we are human. And in a way, it's what I've just been talking about. If you try and set up a model that says that when you become a leader, you should become a superhuman you're not setting a great environment and a great culture so we need to be real about this why would we be any less willing to share that we are struggling with feeling really down today or that we had a miserable meeting and it really upset us than to say i have a really sore throat or my hay fever is really playing up today and i think sometimes we need to challenge ourselves on that Right, well, I'm going to grab oh, one. Pause. Oh, no, I want to do this one. Okay. You do that you one in a okay. minute. We'll wrestle over it. I just This one says, is there support available for churches to help us support people in our congregation with mental health issues? And I just want to point you really easy to our website, mindandsoulfoundation.org. It's not all us. We signpost to a bunch of brilliant um, resources. There are courses on there. There's downloads. There's talks. There's articles. There's so much there. So make sure that you check out the website and go and look at the information on there.
1: This one says, how, do, how does mental health relate to demons, biblically speaking? We hear, hear about this all the time. Um, people make an assumption that somehow if you have a mental health problem that must relate to something supernatural but if you have a physical health problem then that doesn't relate to anything supernatural. What we would say is everything is supernatural. In heaven there's no more weeping and gnashing of teeth, no more suffering in the body but that doesn't mean that your mental health condition is directly a result of something supernatural. That mythology is actually stigma which has impacted the lives of people with mental health problems regularly for hundreds of years and the church is still lagging behind in this area because people assume that if you've got for example schizoaffective disorder, somehow that isn't actually a disorder with your brain, that's a disorder with your soul. In reality, in Scripture, Jesus heals people of demon possession, but he doesn't heal people of mental illness in the accounts. There's actually only one registration for one diagnosable condition in the Bible, and that's leprosy. So we make an assumption about demons and evil spirits, and we immediately attribute them to people with mental health problems. I believe that Jesus healed people with mental health problems in the Scriptures. They just didn't write about it in the same way. And what we need to recognize is, is that if you have a psychotic disorder, uh, that is a neurological problem more than it is a spiritual problem. Um, one of our colleague Rob, works in a, a psychiatric unit, and he would say that just as much as with diabetes, people who are struggling with, with schizophrenia uh, might be influenced by something supernatural, but probably not. Uh, one good litmus test is you can't medicate demons. Demons don't take medication. So if you can give someone medication for, for schizophrenia, for example, and they make a good recovery, you can guarantee, that's a medical problem. If they don't make a recovery come back and have the conversation but let's not make an assumption that demons take medication because they don't. Therefore we need to recognize that anyone who is treatment effective is dealing with a physiological psychological problem which is rooted in biology not in spirituality. That doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't pray for people but let's pray for people without stigma. Uh, We don't go up to someone who's in a wheelchair with one leg and say I need to cast the demon out of you brother so your leg grows back. So let's not do that to people with mental health problems too. Let's treat their problem is the problem and see the person, the precious person that Jesus loves. Let's give those people dignity. And believe me, they're not scary like you believe in the movies. More stigma there to make us afraid, to crush the people who are most vulnerable in our society. Let's love them and bless them like we would anyone else.
0: Yeah, and I had a question about why do we think that there is so much stigma around mental health? And I think some of it is, as Will has just said, the fear of people who are vulnerable and their instinct to push that away, so that we can say it's it's not us. I'm not like that. Perhaps the thing about mental health that is so frightening to so many of us is that it's so close at hand. That if we're really honest, these are things that could happen to any of us. We like to think that mental health is like two boxes. You're either in this box over here, which is like the happy, the normal box and you're basically fine but there are some poor people over here who are in the unhappy box, bless them they didn't have such a good start they have maybe some some you know neurological issues and therefore they struggle with mental health and every once in a while we discover that someone who we thought was in this box who knew all along was in this box I never realised, it's just not like that at all, any of us can struggle with emotional mental health problems, many of us do, we know that you hear the statistic about one in four of us at some point in our adult life will struggle with a mental health problem how would it change our attitude to mental health if we recognize that just like physical health it's something we all have so you will have done things this week already in order to try and maintain or even improve your physical health but how much do we do that for our mental health and as we start to change the way that we view mental and emotional health we'll see some of the stigma go I believe
1: how do I pray for someone who's depressed? Guaranteed that you need to pray for someone who's a person rather than thinking about praying for someone who's depressed. Because what we hear over and over again in our charities, people come to church and, and they might mention that they're depressed and then the ministry team come around them and start praying for their depression. And that's all well and good, apart from they're asked, you know, do you feel any better? And they're going, well, well not really. And they say we'll come back next time. And they come for about six months before they put on the, the kind of, it's like the, the, the kind of loyalty drop or, or, or the loyalty smile. And so say, yeah, no, thanks very much. I'm feeling much better now and then they normally leave the church because they're, they're too embarrassed to really face the reality that they've got a long-term problem that doesn't necessarily get better that quickly. So what we've got to do is stop seeing people who've got a mental health problem as people who just wander around saying, I've got a mental health problem. Can you just talk about my mental health problem the whole time? That's just everything references my mental health problem. And instead to talk to people who are actually people and say, are you still dealing with depression? Yeah, okay. What else is going on in your life right now? Because actually all the people that we represent just want to talk about normal life because they're just normal people. If someone had a physical health problem that you knew was chronic, you wouldn't keep on saying, are you any better? You not, you're not any better. Oh my goodness, we need to pray for you again about that one thing. Actually, we want to just pray for people who are struggling with mental health by just praying for them and saying, hey, what's going on in your life? You know, what's happening today? You know, what, what was the challenge for today? How can I pray for you and how can I support you? We want to keep on praying consistently and persistently for them as people and trust their healing to Jesus. Of course, we're all praying, but you want to Invite them, celebrate them, and pray for them, and see them as people don't see them as problems to be fixed
0: yes because our temptation is to see that unless we are somehow those perfectly whole people emotionally and mentally then we cannot be used we cannot certainly shouldn't be leaders but that's an absolute nonsense because all of us are broken people so if we're going to pray and wait till someone's totally transformed before they can do anything else you're going to be waiting a long time but we should be persistent in prayer but recognize that everybody has skills and giftings and things that God has placed on them that we can help them to be effective in to find meaning in and we should do that too I want to explore um, a little bit around um, anxiety. I have a few questions around what is anxiety, why is anxiety such a problem these days. That really is a whole other seminar for another year. There's loads of stuff on the website about it, so do look. But I think there's two main issues with anxiety, and and one is our misunderstanding of what anxiety is. At its root, anxiety is not a mental health problem. It's an essential human emotion. Anxiety is what saves your life when you step out into the road and there's a car coming. Anxiety is what in encourages you to keep healthy boundaries around yourself and the people you love. It is a good thing and a vital thing. People who have lost the normal experience of anxiety in the ways their brains work are utterly crippled by that loss. They can't function. So we know that anxiety is an essential thing and we need to recognise therefore that when it's become a problem, our approach shouldn't just be about trying to eradicate it completely and somehow live a life anxiety free because there is no such thing. And again, I would encourage you that the more as leaders, as people of faith, the more we follow God's call, we will experience some anxiety so we need to recognise that as a reality. The other big problem with anxiety, though, is our instinctive reaction to it. So if you if you have a bad experience one day, and maybe you're walking down the street and a dog attacks you, what's the the next? And then the next day you're walking down the street and there's another dog that looks very similar. What do you do? You cross the road. You avoid the dog because in your brain is saying the last time we encountered this sort of thing, something bad happened. Your brain has linked that thing with a bad outcome, so you avoid it. And in that moment and that's the simplest thing to do because it reduces your anxiety but the problem is every time you avoid a dog after that somewhere in your mind you start believing that the only reason the bad thing didn't happen is because you avoided the dog and so actually your fear of dogs does not go away or get smaller it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because as time goes on you start to believe that if you ever did encounter a dog the worst would definitely happen and so your fear grows. And that's that model of how fear so quickly grows and steals ground from us is at the root of most problems with anxiety. Because you know how it is when you're, you, you get a bit, we all get a bit worried. Have we locked the car? Have we remembered to do something? Did we remember to lock the house up at night? Did we leave the gas on? These sorts of natural little worries that go through our mind. And what do you do? You go and check to check that you didn't because it controls your anxiety. But it's so easy for that to grow. So the first time you check if you lock the car, you just check one door and then one day you think yeah but what if that door was locked but the other one wasn't so now I have to check both and that grows before you know it it's become a thing that's controlling you and anxiety can so quickly take control so I work with lots of people for whom anxiety has become an incredibly powerful and frightening thing And perhaps at the root of that problem there is not the emotion itself, the anxiety itself. It's our fear of that emotion that causes it to be such a powerful thing. And the good news is you can win ground back off anxiety. You can put yourself back in control. It's about understanding the nature of what it is better, but it is a complicated little emotion.
1: Alongside that, I've just got this question. My partner has OCD diagnosed as a child, which is now taking over other elements of his life, whereby he will spend hours uh, doing particular compulsions. How do you encourage him to talk with someone without thinking he's a, him thinking he's a failure? OCD is an extension of, or it is classified as one of the anxiety family disorders. Uh, ex- two components are obsessions and uh, compulsions. Obsessions are intrusive, threatening thoughts and compulsions are the undoing activities which neutralize those frightening uh, and threatening thoughts. So as Kate's example about the car doors, we'd be initially checking once, thinking the car might be robbed and then then begin to check all the time, increasingly doubting that, the, the, that actually your senses of checking are being approved, and therefore you can end up being completely incapacitated by it. World Health Organization said it's now one of the most debilitating diseases in society. If, I think it's 17 years uh, from onset to diagnosis, typically, so it's a lot of suffering before people get health uh, help, and the nature of the disorder is that it always inhibits people to get the help that they need. because they always believe that they are stupid, that they are being ridiculous, that they can overcome it themselves. It's a serious disorder that can create serious problems for people in their relationships, in their well-being and in their workplace. And our great encouragement is to get involved, to open up and to begin to connect with a great charity like OCD Action here in the UK. Um, And they have support groups which are very, very effective in helping people to begin the journey of walking out of obsessive compulsive disorder.
0: Great, thanks Will. I had another one related to a condition that's related to anxiety, which somebody said, um, would we recommend professional help for someone with a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or should they be patient and wait for the Holy Spirit to do his work? And um, there's two questions really inherent in there. There's one around what is PTSD, and this is where your experience has been incredibly traumatic Quite often, out of the blue, something sudden that shatters some of your beliefs about the world being a safe place, about your ability to be in control of your world, and things like that. And one of the instinctive things your brain does with with traumatic experiences like that is, is it tries to bring them to the surface so you can process what on earth that means to you and the things you understand about the world. But when those memories are so painful and so distressing, the experience of that happening is so terrifying that you'd push them back down. And you kind of get into a place where you're playing playing push and pull with your own mind as you're trying to push something down and your brain is trying to push it up so people experience flashbacks traumatic moments where just an everyday circumstance will trigger a memory uh, that's so powerful that it's like they're back in the moment reliving it and I would just say that PTSD is a complex condition, it is a serious condition like Will was just talking about with OCD, it can be incredibly powerful for people and I would strongly suggest that if that's something you're Experiencing that you seek some advice, that you at least talk to a mental health professional who can help you make the decision about where you go next to get some treatment and some support. Um, in terms of prayer, like Will has said about other things, prayer is wonderful. We should keep praying for people, but we shouldn't see that as the only solution. If they're unwell, help them and support them to engage with the people who can assess and give treatment where appropriate. That's important. Will, you've done loads of PTSD with the Grenfell. Do you want to mention any of that, or is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, ju- I just. Think- I think all all it just impresses upon me again is how we need to take a much more integrated and supportive approach with people. You know, I I think the church is the hospital of the world, and it breaks my heart to see people believing that the church is the worst place you could go if you had a mental health problem. But many people think that that's the case. But, But I'm thinking there are 500 people in the room today. They're all hungry to support people with emotional and mental health problems, their own or other people's. We can change the tide today by creating an environment which is welcoming, supportive, that gives dignity, that that offers respect and encouragement and great advice to people who are struggling. And this might be your mother or your brother or your son or your daughter who's going to be struggling right now. So we just want you to get as equipped as possible. But, But the heart of this is a desire just to get away from that binary stigma that Kate's talking about. To say, actually, this is God and us working together, that actually God has called us to seek the best for the most vulnerable in society. If that's my mum or my neighbour, I'm here to offer them the best possible advice. And actually, if we can create an environment where people can be open and begin to talk about these things without feeling judged or stigmatised, then we've, we've created a great safe space. And the fact is that the church itself, we know. Healthy churches are healing environments for people with mental health problems. Just the community of the church has clinical, cl- positively, positive clinical outcomes for people who are struggling with mental health in- issues. Uh, that's an amazing thing, that we're already a healing environment if only we could just grasp the welcome that people with mental health, and health issues need.
0: One of the most common the biggest trends at the moment in general practice is the, the prescribing of social outcomes so they will prescribe that people do all the kinds of things that you will do in your church about building relationships spending time with people developing hobbies these are things you guys are doing all the time in your local church imagine if you could connect those in need with some of those opportunities
1: Guys, I think we're going to have to close, but before we do, just one one caveat. We'd always say, yes, you can, but one one more from me, just to say, if you're concerned about someone, please at least begin with the GP and have a conversation. Have a chat with that person. Say, can I just, can I come with you? Can I assist you? Can I help you? But always make a referral first to the GP if you're concerned about someone, and if you've someone mentioned in one of these notes just about suicidal ideas. If you're concerned about someone's well-being, if you sense that someone's making plans or organizing their life in a way that that, that gives you a sense of threat about their well-being, never hesitate to call 999. You know, you could save someone's life and That's how serious mental health is. It's the largest killer of men under 50 in the UK, greater than cancer or suicide. More men between 18 and 50 die every year by suicide than than are killed in car accidents or killed by cancer. So we have to take mental health seriously because it's a life or death issue for many people in our society.
0: Yeah. Well, funny enough, it was the same question. Basically, someone saying, how do I help someone who doesn't think that they have a problem if I'm concerned about someone? What do I do? And there's a similar question saying, what do you class as normal with regards to mental health? So whether you're concerned about yourself or someone else and you're wondering, is this a problem, is it not? How do I get help? As Will says, remember that there are sources of help. And you can go to the mentalhealthaccesspack.org. And there is a link on there you can click about. How do I support someone to get help? That will give you some great advice on that. But one of the most difficult issues with mental and emotional health is the teasing apart of how much of this is the person that God made me and how much of it is a problem. How much, is this actually something I need help with or that this person needs help with? And your opinion on that may be different from theirs. So we have to show great wisdom in this and we have to recognize ultimately that this is about life to the full, abundant life that God want, longs for us to have. And we can all probably grow in this stuff. Emotional maturity isn't something you achieve and then you're done with. It's a lifelong journey. So the first step in supporting anyone with mental health is probably not just about going in and and saying, well, you obviously have a problem. We need to sort this out. But do you know them? Do you spend time with them? Have you taken them for coffee? Do you love them as a person? do you get into that proximity with them? Because only once you've formed a relationship with someone do you then have the permission to try and help them to deal with something so much bigger. And like Will says, the GP is is often the best place to start, but that may be the hardest step that someone who is struggling with emotional mental health problems ever takes, walking through that door. Getting, I can't tell you how many people I know who've gone to the GP, made up a fictitious physical ailment and then come out again because they just couldn't get into words the reality of why they went there. So support them, go with them, pray in that moment, help them write a letter that they maybe take round to the GP the day before the appointment, just in case they can't get the words out. Support them to do that, but most of all, be a friend, journey with them, walk alongside them.
1: We're going to just pray now. Jesus, help us, Father, with our own emotional and mental health, help us, Lord, to let go of that superhero image and instead be vulnerable before you. Vessels that are weak but made strong by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And Father, make us welcome us in our churches and communities to those who are really struggling with mental and emotional health issues. We pray, Lord, give us big, big hearts. Help us, Father, to help those who struggle in this way. Give us grace and peace today in Jesus' name. amen thanks so much everyone for your time it's been great to see you this afternoon the next session starts i think at quarter past six if you're interested
0: in the stuff i was mentioning in my seminar i did write a book on this it's called refuel it's a great book refuel it's in the bookshop or you can amazon it just go past all the stuff about prince william and then it's me
1: (laughs) thanks everyone